Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Time to play with pain. Hosted by Emmy-winning comedian and writer Jeff Cesario. Interviewing guests from comedy, entertainment, and sports. Plus, legendary sportscaster Chet Waterhouse. Don't worry, this shouldn't take longer than your average trip to Costco. And now, here's your host, Jeff How do you go from a 13-week fill-in on Conan? You got one shot, 13 weeks. It goes well. They want to keep you. Now they keep you. What kind of contract do you get? When And when do you get comfortable enough to go, I'm going to pitch this lunatic idea I have and see if they can do it. And 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 they start to rely on you more and more for that. That's a great question, Jeff. Like, I think it was always such an experimental place and everything was so, because it was a show every day, it felt like kind of a laboratory. Like we were almost up in an attic being left alone to just throw stuff at the wall. That's and the that, best. It really was a luxury to be able to operate like where I feel like we were under much scrutiny and we were just basically, you couldn't get too precious with ideas, whether they worked or didn't work. You were just having to throw something up there every night. And I remember... I think, to be honest, I think one of the sketches that is one of the reasons I got kept on was during that first uh, that first 13 weeks, I wrote a sketch. Uh, it, I had a germ of an idea, and it was just to have um, Andy's Andy Richter have a little sister who had a oh, crash opponent. And it ended up being the brilliant Amy Poehler, who I knew from Chicago. And we were I was originally going to get a 13-year-old girl, you know, a real 13-year-old girl, and then we were like, uh, I was talking with John Groff, the head writer, and he, we were like, could Amy look 13? And we're like, when we get put in the pigtails and braces, she totally did. Yeah. And her performance was so, I owe her so much from that because she took a basic idea, a very simple idea, and her performance took it up, elevated it to such a point that it turned into a memorable sketch that I think, I was never told this, but I think it's one of the reasons they wanted to possibly keep me on because- and then I that gave me some confidence to try pitching other character ideas and other. But it was always I got to say, it was always a very. Uh, even early on, I felt encouraged to toss stuff in and I saw everyone else doing that. And you could tell from things like Tommy doing the gaseous wiener or, or uh, Brian McCann doing loser at the beach, you know, these crazy yeah. characters. They were very. um they were just throwing stuff at the wall. And so you, you you didn't really worry about it too much or agonize over it. It was like, Hey, what the hell? Let's try it. And um, yeah. so that, that, that was a luxury to be able to come into that environment with a bunch of people who I shared that kind of sensibility from Chicago with a lot of these people and Conan's an improviser himself. And Steven working with Steven is very similar to that too. They love to just, they like when things go off the rails, they like when things yeah. um get a little like takes a takes a left turn that we weren't expecting it and having to try to put it back on the tracks is half the fun for them so yeah 
Yeah, so- Amy Poehler's commitment level in that bit uh, playing uh, Andy's younger sister who has a crush on Conan is uh, is so off the charts, I would literally have to go back to maybe Dan Aykroyd for that level of pure, unadulterated, straight in the main vein commitment. I mean, I was at home and I got thrown back a little bit in my chair going, holy crap. First of all, I didn't know who she was. And I'm like, wow, whoever this is, is so completely committed to it. There is no chance it's not going to work. <laughs> that That's so great to hear, Jeff, because I felt I always felt the same way about Amy, even back in Chicago. She was always I remember that I saw her the, for the first time at I.O., you know, on stage. And and the first night I saw her was also the first night I saw Tina Fey. They were in the same improv Olympic team. Wow. And Tina was always brilliant, but she was she was kind of reserved and kind of uh, would step in and say something brilliant and Dorothy Parker like and. Right. And incredibly genius. And then she would step back. Amy seemed fully formed from day one. Like, I don't remember her having an arc of getting. Like, <laughs> she just seemed like spring fully formed from the head of the improv gods or something. Tina was always brilliant. Uh, but Amy always. Amy's grain form- alcohol. She is just pure grain alcohol from the she, get. She know? really did seem that she was fully committed in everything I ever saw her do. And she can do anything. And. You know, one of the things I feel bad about in retrospect was um, I hadn't done any bits in the audience myself yet. So I thought we shouldn't have cue cards for Amy for that bit because everyone's going to see all the jokes and they're going to see what's coming. <laughs> and I and to have her do those bits with no cue cards is insane. You can't do it. it can't and she done. did it. She did it. Wow. She, she, That's... And we would have rewrites and she would still not miss a line. And That's she impressive. would. And I, I think back on it now, and I'm just like so embarrassed that uh, I was like, I, I realized later most of the audience doesn't look at the cards anyway. They're looking at the monitors to see the right. sketch, and they're looking to see what's on the TV, and they're looking at the actors. And it was ridiculous for me, to, but I just didn't know, and I feel bad. <laughs> but she nailed it anyway. So, so when do you get to a place where you say to yourself, "I'm actually going to pitch me for this idea"? You have an advantage which you've mentioned, which is. You have to have a short memory when you're doing four or five nights a week, five shows a week. You got to be able to go, that was brilliant. Yeah, well, you got to do it again tonight. That sucked. Forget it. You got to do it again tonight. Uh, So you've got that advantage where at some point you've got to be able to say, hey, guys, how about me for for this? Do you remember what popped into your head where you had the balls to go, "I, I could do this one? That's a good question, Jeff. Like, I it took a long time for me to feel confident to pitch myself for stuff. Like, I would usually, if I was in bits early on, it was someone else asking me to come in as a doctor or come in as uh, right. this or whatever. <laughs> and um, I'm trying to think. I me- like I remember Brian McCann had the idea for me originally to play Frankenstein because uh, I think because I'm <laughs> kind of tall and awkward and and um, but then it ended up. I ended up writing some Frankenstein bits later on, but Brian thought of me to play Frankenstein. And then I think um, I remember Andrew Weinberg suggested, Hey, how about stack? We have you play a, um, uh, an old timey salesman, you know? Oh, so I did the traveling salesman, is and, so but great. I wrote, I wrote that with Andrew and Michael Komen. Uh, we would write those bits together, but I have Andrew to thank for pitching me for that. The ghost crooner. I remember, I think that was one where I actually thought maybe I could do it. Cause, um, I had the idea. Explain I, the germ of that idea. 
and how it grows into when does the bizarre left turn come into that and and take us through that and what that turn was I think what that came from was, first of all, I realized one day I was like, wow, Rockefeller Center has been here since 1930 or so. And so there was all these radio singers that used to sing there, like Bing Crosby and stuff. And I started and I remember also hearing that Bing Crosby had this dark side, you know, that like he had this, you know, hey, junior kind of persona. (laughs) But he was also could be like just this unspeakable, horrible guy in other ways, you know. Right, right. I think what if there's a guy who's awful but he sounds like you know just hey how's it going (laughs) and so i started to think about a guy having a really dark undercurrent and um also we'd done a bit where andy was kind of half faded away um and all it required was a lockdown shot of a empty chair faded in over a live shot of andy and it i was like that's really all you have to do to fade someone in and out so we half faded me in as the ghost and i realized you could make something appear like a ghost and it's really not a big technical trick. It's yeah, very you s- you suddenly realized you're not pitching a, a uh, $53,000 CGI bit, but you're exactly. pitching something that costs a nickel. Exactly. You it just it, took off with it. Yeah, it was, it was that simple. And so, and then um, I remember, I, 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 re- I do remember thinking uh, later on after I did it a few times, the crooner, um, if I'd known I was going to do it more than once, I would have at least varied the melody of the song because it's always the same damn song. No, but I think that's part of the that's part of the joke for me. Oh, thanks. It, it's like thanks. the dude knows one tune. <laughs> that was it. And I always try to make it clear that he'd been murdered by like the League of Women voters. And, like he was just this horrible racist misogynist so monster. He would start by he would the ghost crooner would would just sort of come upon Conan. And 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 he would be he would respond as if it was just this this ghost who lived in the studio, and and sang, and you would start to sing, and then like the lyrics would go off, just horrifically off the rails. Right. It was just he he obviously you know was a bigot and a misogynist and like uh, thought the the Irish had brains made of corn and um, and I always tried to. <laughs> I always, you know, try to go after my own people, the Irish with it and go after Conan people uh, to, you know, don't want to be attacking other groups and stuff. uh, And I would always, uh, yeah, I would always try to, it's always fun too, to have like Conan have to say, all right, I'll listen to one more song, which why is he letting him sing another one? But I would always be like, how about a sweet little one for the ladies? And And uh, go, oh, all right. Yeah. It's, it's such a great uh, bit because it relies on obscure but still trustworthy comedy saws, if you will. Co- you know, uh-huh. comedy scaffolding. Like, like, like nobody does that anymore. The old, like, there's no way you would let this bit go on. Right. But comedically, there's a beat where the guy is, all right, I'll try one more. You know, th- Conan does those things and nobody really does those anymore. And I love that. Like these obscure little comedy muscles. And you go, yeah, let's do that and run another three freaking songs out of this guy. <laughs> I'll always be grateful to him for being willing to be the straight man in a lot of these bits because, you know, as brilliant as he, you know, Stephen too, like the, his willingness to be a straight man in, in bits where someone will come out and do stuff when they're two of the funniest guys, you know, in the world. Right. But and quickest, sometimes yeah. it requires them to just 
be the audience and be the voice of reason listening to this insanity. And um, there were some times where Conan would jokingly say, you guys turned me into Mr. Mooney today. Which, you know, if anyone remembers from the old Lucy show, Mr. Right. Mooney's just getting, this is outrageous, you know. And it's like, it's just the complete straight man who isn't getting, um, it was just reacting to the man. Right, you know? right. Stop this at once, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so now, um, do you get enough satisfaction doing that level of performing occasionally popping up on coning having some recurring characters that people are kind of looking forward to or do you still have to scratch that itch somewhere else or somehow else well you know i always love doing improv shows even like on weekends in new york like i'd go do the ass cat show with all the ucb friends and that was always like just like a chicago reunion every week we'd like and and with a lot of new york people that weren't ever even in chicago um but when i first got to New York in 97 going to do ASCAT on Sunday nights was such a thrill. And then, um, I, I used to do a lot of outside voiceover work, which I really enjoyed doing. And then I would, I would get to do occasionally little guest things, you know, in like, uh, like friends would ask me to do a little bit thing in their show or, you know, like I'd come in and, um, like I got to do a few little guest bits on like Parks and Rec and 30 Rock and, did one thing on the office and stuff. And that was always a, a thrill, even though they were very, very minor little uh, supporting roles. I got a real, it was such a treat to go in and see how they do the show. And right. And, see, and also it was such a, a lovely thing to see the tone that people like Amy was set at park where it wasn't a surprise to me, but how that it all trickles down from whoever's like the, the lead voice of the show. And that's why I think that show had, one of the reasons it had so much heart to it um, and such a sense of fun and family. And you see it in the cast when they're doing the show. And it's because that was all on the set, even when the cameras weren't rolling, like Amy would set that kind of tone. And right. Yeah. It's 30 rock too. You know, you can, you know, when you're in a uh, creative and supportive environment and when you're in a fear-based environment and in show business ironically they both work they will both get a successful product in front of the cameras but if you're writing on it (laughs) you know and you're in a fear-based environment it's hell man it's like oh my god why do you have to be and and the the fear and panic combined uh creates an environment, and I've only sort of guested in rooms that have been like that. But the second I see it, I like take a step back and go, I, I couldn't do that anyway. I tried a couple times early in my career to survive those. And then I just went, all right, fear-based, I just I can't really function in that. So I'm just going to step back and put up the, you know, the shields, the Star Trek shields, and, <laughs> and just do the best I can. But but it works. It still gets product in front of the camera that people find funny, especially funny. Yeah, I'm always amazed because I I I haven't had to work in a in a one of those terror based uh, writers rooms. But I do know that I've heard about shows that have done quite well with with that environment, and that baffles me because I personally don't think I could function either in in that kind of environment. Like it it I don't see how people like I always. 
one of my favorite shows of all time. You worked on the Larry Sanders show and you know, it's one of the genius shows of all time. And and it, I think it's, I think it's one of the greatest shows ever made. And it's, um, and the ensemble element of the, the entire cast feeling like, like, like all my favorite shows, there's that element where no one, like, everyone's serving the overall piece as opposed to trying to serve themselves. Right. And that's like why it's so great because if someone, if it's requiring the main character to just hang back and let someone else shine in that scene, that's what's best for the show. So that's what happens. Right. You know, and yeah. there's other shows where someone, the main star is like, I'm not, I'm the only one who shines, you know? Right. And <laughs> right. Yeah. that's, that ends up kind of, I think having a detrimental effect on a show a lot of the time. Eventually, I, I believe it, does, it has a, a detrimental effect immediately on on uh, on what is now called the uh, work personal life balance, work home life balance. Which, if we would have had that term twenty five years ago, I might have survived better. Uh, but <laughs> nobody thought of that. They just went, "Shut the fuck up and keep writing." Uh, but uh, yeah. When you're on a set like that and Rip Torn takes a step back and goes, uh, well, Jeffrey, Tambor, this this is your thing. Shine here. I'll 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 maneuver this way so you can get what you need. And you're like, this is this is Rip Torn and Jeffrey Tambor, who are two of the most, you know, two of the greatest actors, quite frankly, that that America. If you listed 100 actors, they'd probably both be on it. Yeah. And you're going, okay, well, I can probably go back to my office and shut the hell up and just work on my next script until it's good. So it feeds off, that energy does feed off itself. And I'm sure you experienced that at Conan and now at, at Colbert. Absolutely. I think that the environments are very similar in the sense that like there tends to, people, you know, this may sound very Pollyannish, but it's honestly very true. Most of the people I've gotten to work with have been really nice people who love what they do and love and just are trying to make the whole show good. And, you know, and everybody's trying. And that goes from like, I think about people like our costume designers, uh, like Scott Cronick at Conan, you know, um, or Antonia, you know, at, at, at Colbert, like they'll, they'll just, they'll, they make everything better and they save your butt so often and no one knows who they are. And that kills me because yeah. Like our prop guy, Bill Tull uh, from Conan, who just passed away, who used to do on-camera bits a lot. Yeah. There's no way to overstate how much he saved our ass and like how, how, what the lengths to which he would go to get it. Like, I'll never forget early on, I had an idea for during a staring contest bit at Conan for Andy Daly was playing Hamlet and he he had a York skull. (laughs) He had York skull. And and I, I said to Bill, I said, is there any way for a tongue to come out of a skull? skull and for Hamlet to start making out with the skull and he goes yeah no problem and I'm like and he made a skull with a little latch on the bottom for Andy to flip it so the tongue would come out and French kiss the skull and on my last day at Conan I swear this is true um I was saying Bill I I can't even begin to thank you for all the stuff you did for us and um I even remember the skull with a tongue back in New York and he goes oh yeah and um Later that day, he came in and gave me the skull. He had it. Wow. I couldn't That's believe impressive. he had it. He goes, oh, yeah, I never throw anything away. <laughs> and um, That's so sweet. That thing had traveled across the country <laughs> to Los Angeles. And um, so it those people save 
you know, it's there's so many unsung heroes at the shows. And um, yeah, I think people uh, at at home don't necessarily uh, see clearly what goes into it because it looks rough and kind of thrown together. And you're kind of hoping it is so that it frays a little bit at the edges and gets even funnier. But it's day in and day out. It's like triage comedy producing. Absolutely. You know, I, I you know, I need a board that uh, that can blow out into a peacock tail. All right. You know, uh, and he's got to look like suddenly a drip of blood has to come from his tongue. Can we do? I mean, you know, it's just craziness that. And when you have a team like that, that that's yes. And that literally is the basic premise of improv. But mm-hmm. from wardrobe, from makeup, from production, Wow, it it just makes the difference. It makes all the difference in the world to to go get a laugh. Absolutely, and and the, just a quick example. Bill once they had an idea for going to be shearing a sheep, and then they cut away and they cut back, and a <laughs> sheep skeleton went far. And uh, and Bill, so had he had to get a sheep skeleton, which and he's like, well, how, where am I going to find that? So Bill went out to New Jersey to a sheep farm and dug up a skeleton with a backhoe. Had to bring it back, boil it, reassemble the sheep skeleton for a sight gag that was wow. about a second long. And like that's just an example of like all these things. You no one knows how much work goes into these things. All we know is we show up at work and there's a sheep skeleton, you know. <laughs> and this this is precisely this exact example is precisely why when a bit like that doesn't get a laugh. Every writer in the room buckles over in in hysterical laughter. That's exactly yeah. why. <laughs> exactly. We, we uh, Andrew Weinberg, you know, one of our writers used to joke that the, there's a there's a direct correlation between the amount of work you ask other departments to do and how poorly a bit will. And so it's like the more a lot of times the simplest ideas work the best, and the other ones where you're yeah. like, I want you to spend all night making. Um, you know, a, a a parade float, and it's like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, that's often the case. You know, I could never take that pressure when I worked at uh, Queen Latifah's daytime show. I said, and I started to get good at it. And I said, just give me the nickel bits. Give me the bits that that where you go. Well, we don't have any money. Can you come up with something in eight minutes? Yes, that I can do. <laughs> give me a yeah. folding chair. And the premise of of the voice, and I, you know, I wound up writing a bit where Queen Latifah was wound up being the fourth judge, but they'd run out of chair money. And oh, so that's got great! A chair. So you know, I said that I can do if if it involves production. I can't do it. <laughs> I, I just I can't bring myself to spend money. <laughs> I totally relate, Jeff. I I I used to feel so guilty about you know wasting money or wasting oh, even though you know, we we're a low budget show, you know. Um, it, you always feel bad if you feel like you've wasted people's time. <laughs> yeah. What's your biggest gear shift from Conan to Colbert? Cause, cause they're different shows with different emphasis and especially Conan who, who kind of stayed, uh, you know, in, in an arena where maybe you could play a little more and Colbert, who's going mainstream 1130, yet still wants to do some stuff that pushes the envelope. For you as a writer, what was the toughest shift? The, the most challenging, the fun challenge was shifting into writing more uh, 
politically based humor because like at Conan, most of the stuff we did that touched on politics was tended to be very silly. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just right. You know, it was like Smigel or me or McCann doing like those lips, you know, right. Smigel doing Clinton going, Yeehaw! you know, that was like, or, uh, you know, or him doing um, Arnold Schwarzenegger or, you know, and uh, so it tended to be, you know, more uh, cartoonish and, and silly. And Stephen has a wonderful, silly sense of humor and loves silly, but the monologue is also such a large, larger chunk of the show right. the emphasis of the show at the late show so that's been an interesting challenge because there's so much more emphasis on the monologue at um like at conan i almost never even worked on monologue stuff that was like a few other guys like brian kiley and laurie kilmartin and you know those guys who would just work on because conan would usually only do you know several monologue jokes and then we'd get over to the desk piece and right uh, right right but the monologue is such a larger part of the late show and also you know, none of us, like when Stephen took over the late show in 2015, none of us saw like Trump coming or anything like that. So none of us right. really knew what was in store and what the national mood was going to be. So um, it was an interesting challenge to shift into more topical political stuff as opposed to silly character based stuff, which is kind of was my entire background, even in Chicago. Um, but it was an interesting challenge. And I work with such, you know, some just people who are so naturally good at writing that kind of stuff that um i just i just try to contribute where i can and come in and do and i enjoy doing some performing stuff and um and i really do enjoy bouncing ideas off of them even though some of them are so much more suited to political humor than i am i I do do my best to to rise to the challenge but it's been it has been a it was definitely a a real shift in terms of um the kind of material that we were doing nothing helps a shift like that like just a good fun writer's room where there's some trust there and uh and the ball busting is done in a benevolent way uh all around the room and everybody's getting it Mm -hmm. It, it's just a great feeling just great look we've barely touched on sports and before we do uh you bring up the talking uh, the, the lips on the conan show that we're inside headshots yeah, the clutch uh, cargo, which is a reference yeah. to an old, you know, an old bit on Ray right. Rain. And you, did you literally have to set your head in a in a brace? How did they shoot that? Yeah, it was a locked on camera, and and Smigel, Robert Smigel, did about I'd say ninety percent of the uh, the lips. But and it, I remember going to see the show in ninety four, bef- three years before I worked there. Andy got me tickets, and uh, I remember saying, "Oh, that's how they do it," because they had Robert. And they, I think Robert, one, one of the genius things he said was the audience will enjoy seeing the process of how we do this. So they kept the curtain open. So you'd see, you know, Robert just doing it and resting his chin on a thing. And I did the same thing when I did voices for it. Like if they had me do like Mike Tyson or Martha Stewart or something, I would just like put my chin <laughs> on the thing. And and sometimes uh, Robert would be right next to me and we'd be, but you had to kind of keep your face still. Right. And it must be a camera on your lips. And then they would key it into the face of the picture. And uh, it was a really simple, fun way to do goofy impressions because it was, uh, you know, it was so low tech, you know. <laughs> uh, that, that, those are the best. And you're the guy they go to. Your range is Mike Tyson to Martha Stewart. 
<laughs> well, Robert did like, I think Smigel did, God, he did everything from Schwarzenegger to Bush to Barbara Bush. I remember. And, and how much fun is he to work with? Oh, he's, he's a blast. Yeah. I, I only got to work with Robert when he would come in. I was never, never head writer at Conan when I worked there, but he would come in to do Triumph and clutch cargo bits. Oh, and God. he, he was, uh, I always knew of Robert's reputation and uh, how brilliant he was, but he, he was so fun to work with when writing the clutch cargo bits and rewrite. Cause he, um, he just really just wants everything to be as funny as possible. And he's so fearless. Like I've been on shoots with him oh my God. He's doing triumph and the guy has no fear at all. He'll go up to like, I remember being at the video music awards where he was trying to get into insult in sync and he was trying to get past their, uh, their huge bodyguards. And there was a bodyguard who looked like a mountain, you know, who was just standing there. And Robert was trying to do triumphal, the guy's shoulder to yell it in sync. And um, the guy turns around and he goes, back off, man. And Robert goes, I'm just making jokes. And the guy just goes, can't make jokes with a broken jaw. <laughs> and uh, but Robert was willing. Robert would get his jaw That's broken great. if he could get an extra joke. You know, he's just one of those. Wow. He's utterly utterly fearless and uh i admire that and and um super funny and uh you know but he'll he'll also stay up all night we did a wiener circle bit in chicago with jack mcbrayer where he was in the hot dog place where that they pride themselves on insulting everybody (laughs) and i think they left at like 5 30 a.m i left at like and i was beat you know um but he'll stay all night to get extra (laughs) that's impressive now uh how does a guy like Andy Richter, who has incredible comedy chops, how is he able to literally reshape the role of the traditional sidekick, as it were? And we got to go back to when they started in the early 90s on NBC, when the model was Ed McMahon. There wasn't mm-hmm. really uh, only SCTV had done a version of a talk show, an entire parody of a talk show where John Candy played William B. Williams, the incredibly suck ass right. right. uh, sidekick to, uh, to, uh, why am I ah, blanking? Sammy Maudlin. Sammy Maudlin. Thank you. Yeah, Joe Flair, uh, Joe Flair. So there's really no role models for Andy to go, okay, I got to make this real, but I also, I can't just, you know, I've got to change this somehow. I I can't believe the job he did on it. It seems to me it's stunning. It was was stunning to me too. And like, I knew Andy, you know, in Chicago, as I mentioned, and I knew how funny he was. I knew that when I, when I started watching the show, when he started doing it with Conan, that it was really just Andy being Andy. And I think that was the key. He wasn't trying to be someone else or be a typical psychic. He was just being Andy talking to Conan. And that's why I think Robert suggested having him sit down with him one day at rehearsal. Cause Andy was hired as a writer on the show and didn't know he was going to be a sidekick. But Conan was so tickled by Andy and so obviously found him so funny and loved how honest he was and how he would kind of like one thing about Conan is that he loves people who call him on stuff like that's uh-huh. like his wife Liza or his assistant Sona. They call him out on like, you're being an erotic idiot, you know, or they'll uh, or Andy will say like, stop, stop it, you know. Right. And um, he loves that because, you know, he, you know, like most comedians, we're all full of self-loathing. And like when someone calls you on your on your shit, you're like, yes, I love this guy. (laughs) And so he loved Andy from the beginning. And I think Robert sensed that and said, hey, why don't you sit down and keep him company, you know, during this uh, test show? 
And um, I think it was just very natural and real. And Andy was really just being Andy. And I think that's why it worked because, you know, he was just, instead of forcing it and trying to be uh, a, a sidekick in the typical mold, he was just talking to Conan and sitting there and either supporting him or busting his, busting his balls, whatever it called right. for. That's well, it's a great lesson too, to just be organic, be, be, be true to whoever you are and something good. Yeah. Conan even said that. that that's right. Like I remember, I think Conan said that Johnny Carson even said to him when he was starting the show at late night, he said, I don't know if you can do this or not, but I will say the only way this can work is if you be yourself. That's fantastic advice. Yeah, and I thought that was brilliant because he, he said, like, you can't, you, you can't, like, try to be what you've seen before unless it's really the way you really are, you know? So it's like, right. and I thought that was great advice. And, uh, like, no one can be a better you than you can, you know? It's, um, and it may not work, you know? Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes brilliant people have failed shows, obviously. And right. uh, there's a lot of luck involved in time slot luck. Yeah, I mean, look at the Dana Carvey show, which had one of the most brilliant writing staffs and yeah. performance staffs ever. And um, there's no reason for why that should have not worked. Yeah, and, it, it's just, the time slot yeah. was bad. And yeah, it was just. Yeah, there there are uh, inclement weather can have it at any time in comedy. Yeah, there's so it, much it, luck involved, you know, and the good and bad, you know. <laughs> so uh, what's a moment that you remember uh, from so many years dealing with Conan who is uh, you know, we all know hilarious guy. One of the quickest guys off the top of his head and uh, you know, just wildly entertaining. I mean, he got the gig because he was so entertaining in writer's rooms. Right. That, you know, eventually Lauren went, well, you could do this. Yeah. I think that <laughs> you know, and he took it. And so the, he took the shot and and you worked from a long time interactions good you know a, a bit bombing an incredible interaction whatever they may be what what pops to mind when 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 you think of Conan well you know one of my favorite things was just when he would just come in and riff around with the writers in the room like he'd have his guitar or he'd come in and just jokingly, he'll be like stack you alabaster ape. Like he would just come in and like, <laughs> you know, but it was always very affectionate. Um, but he would come in, he would come in and just some of my favorite memories are just the silliest bits that don't so translate. Alabaster ape was said with great affection. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm certainly no paler than he is, you know, but uh, I was like, but we're both like, people used to think I was his brother when I first started the show. Cause we're the wow. same height. We got red hair and, um, I, but it was funny. I think some of my favorite memories are just that, that wouldn't translate. I'd come home and try to explain them to my wife, Miriam, or something. And Conan even joked about this on his podcast. He used the example of me trying to go home and tell Miriam a bit from the office that wouldn't translate at all. But little things like he would come in and he would have like a little tweed cap and he would come in and go, my name, good sirs, is Cappy Cap. I am a fine <laughs> and gentle chap. I hope you have enjoyed my rap. That name again, uh, Cappy Cap. <laughs> yeah. And it's just the stupidest stuff that is, there's a guy who went to Harvard just doing the dumbest, <laughs> the dumbest thing in the world. Um, and Or he would come in after the Yankees won the World Series and be like, with bat and ball, they took the field. With 
tap and glove, refuse to yield, <laughs> you know, just like Casey at the bat kind of bullshit. That's uh, some of my, and it doesn't translate. Like I try to tell people about it and it, but oh, to be great. in the room, you would come in and riff around and, um, like Brian McCann had a shaved head at one point and he was wearing a white turtleneck and he comes in, he goes, Oh, an egg in an egg cup, you know? And it was just, it was just, those were the things I missed the most would just be yeah. literally just coming in and riffing. And he did that constantly. We rarely had a real, that was why it was funny with the day I was my last day leaving Conan, when I asked him for his blessing to, you know, head back East and he was so, so kind about it. We actually had a real conversation. And I remember thinking, why does this feel so weird? I'm just having a real earnest conversation. Because <laughs> yeah. most of it was always on a bit level, you know, it was always yeah. him coming in with a guitar and just making up songs about us and stuff. And because um, that's, you watch his remotes and you can see that that's where he's. Oh yeah. Constantly riffing wow. with strangers and, uh, and. And the universal ability to do it in Cuba or, uh, you know, Armenia or is just. So much fun to see. So much. It fun really is, and I think that the fact that Conan and Stephen both are as much writers as they are performers, and they're both so brilliantly funny as writers that that's like so much of the fun of it is you're working with people that are tossing in so many great ideas of their right. own, and you're like, oh, my God, there's a reason why you know this person's a famous comedian and hosting the show, but like there's times where you're uh, like. I think that's one of the reasons both shows, uh, you know, found an audience and like found success was because um, I don't think it can be overstated how how important it is that both those guys are writers as much as they are performers. Right. Know? That's the thing. And the thing I'll say about Stephen Colbert only did a, a, a short thing with him once for Comedy Central on which he was hilarious and on which he also warned me when I finished it, I produced some stuff for an anniversary special of theirs. And halfway through it, I realized, oh, they got me to deal with Dennis Leary and Stephen Colbert and and Gilbert and all these guys because because anybody from Comedy Central who walked in, those guys would all go, get out of here. So, <laughs> <laughs> but if I were going to go, all right, all right, what do you want to try to do? Uh, oh, so, okay. <laughs> so I finished the bit and I go, this is going to cut together great. And Colbert said, yeah, wait till Comedy Central gets their hands on it. And sure enough. <laughs> Despite absolute fisticuffs in the edit bay, uh, you know, they owned it. They won. And the bit was, was just, it came out fine, but it could have been like 90% funnier. But that wasn't the Chevy Chase Rose, was it? No, no. It was a uh, called the Bar Mitzvah Bash. It was their 13th oh. anniversary. Oh, uh, okay. Show, and, I, and I went in and did some stuff. And, uh, and I just so respected his ability to come off the top of his head. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and I've seen some guys who can do that from Dennis Miller on, you know, who can just, you know, uh, Russell Brand, I worked with guys who just, who bang, it's there. Yeah. And Stephen was, you know, was right at the top of that list. I mean, I couldn't believe how quick he was. It was really... But first of all, it makes your job so much easier when, you know, all right, maybe I can, maybe I can cobble together some crutch of a setup and he'll take it from there. You know, so when you're working with Stephen is, is, does that pop up for you? Oh yeah. Like it, it I'm, I'm constantly amazed at how 
the ability to improve stuff on the fly, like in the, in the rewrite or, uh, and he and Conan were both amazing at their instincts for what will work or what, like you could lose this piece yeah. or move this piece or like their instincts for improving stuff on the fly is amazing to watch because, um, I, I think I'd be kind of going, what do you guys think? What do, what do you think? What, what, what do you guys think? What do you think? And you don't always have time for that. So it, it requires a lot of times just making lightning quick decisions. Okay, it's cut like, that, yeah. move that. Instant you know, executive producing. It's just like, vroom. it's like it you is. can see it. It's wild. Yeah, it is. And it's really impressive to watch uh, how lightning quick they, they are. And, um, and, you know, it's, uh, I think, like I said, the, the the ability to write as well as as perform. Like I, there there have been some brilliant hosts that weren't writers at all, you know, uh, or people like like I don't believe Sid Caesar was a was a writer, right? Uh, but he was an amazing performer. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but I'm always impressed when like I find people who did both, you know, because I'm just like wow they they were the front face of the show, but they also were basically head writers you know at the same time which is what conan and steven have always been and that's really amazing to me well my friends we are done uh folks uh it's flown by that fast we'll probably cut this one into two episodes my guest uh incredibly uh funny consistently funny uh in front of the camera behind the camera brian stack uh follow him on twitter at brian stack and uh, watch his work on the late show with stephen colbert and if you're in New York, uh, ch- you never know. Check out the improv shows. Brian Stack may pop up. Anything else we should know about? I think you covered it. Thanks, Jeff. It? It, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I really uh, appreciate you asking me to do it, and it's great to talk to you. Oh, man. Uh, I had a blast. Uh, thanks so much. And and indeed, uh, seriously, uh, uh, catch him on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Always funny. Uh, thanks a ton for doing it. Follow me on Twitter at Real Jeff Cesario. My album, What Was I Thinking? Streaming everywhere. The Play With Pain mugs. Oh, yeah, there's mugs uh, available <laughs> at jeffcesario.com. Check uh, my website for any upcoming dates. I'm going to try to get out, do a little road work this fall. Uh, uh, and uh, tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, we're having a blast. Uh, Chet, what do you got cooking? Oh, this week I'll be in Kalanick, Maine, calling <laughs> the All You Can Eat Lobster Newberg Festival for the Emesis Network. Take it from me, steer clear of the vomit buckets. Sponsored by Tempurapedic, the lightly fried adjustable mattress, and my pillow case. Make any pillow your pillow with my pillow case. This is Chet Waterhouse reminding you to play with pen. Hey!